It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And the Orioles have won the game. They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy. They're jumping on each other. One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, Brett Hollander, and the one and only Jeff Arnold. Jeff, how are you? Doing well, Brett. Excited to be back for for another week and uh, for this great conversation with uh, Rodrigo Lopez today in some pretty bizarre weather conditions that took place back in 2003. Yeah, when you have in your mind snow coming down, it usually doesn't associate with opening day in baseball, perhaps uh, December football in Baltimore, but not opening day. And I was at that game as a fan with my dad, and I remember, like it was yesterday, gigantic baseball-sized snowflakes coming down in the middle of a baseball game, and the Orioles' right fielder at the time, Jay Gibbons, lost that fly ball in the snow. Uh, There's no other way to say it. Uh, And uh, Rodrigo Lopez, who got the ball that day for Baltimore, he will be our guest coming up. I was wondering if he'd ever seen snow before because he's from Mexico and before he joined the Orioles, he was pitching for the Padres. And it turned out that he actually had seen it before when he was at one of the minor league stops. But you, you generally, there's not a whole lot of a playbook on how to pitch in the snow. And it's a heck of a lot harder when your infielders can't see and your outfielders can't see and your catcher can't see. So what exactly are you supposed to do in that spot? And, and him talking about how he handled those bizarre moments of that opening day game were, were pretty cool. Yeah, this is March 31, 2003, opening day. The Cleveland Indians were in town. And welcome to it. Welcome to Orioles Magic the podcast presented by Miller Light, Brett Hollander, and Jeff Arnold. And we're joined now by Rodrigo Lopez, former Orioles pitcher and someone who came in second in the Rookie of the Year voting back in 2002. Rodrigo, it's great to talk with you. Well, thank you guys for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to me, uh, you know, be back in Baltimore somehow. Uh, this is the first interview in a while since I'm uh, since I was part of the Orioles. So thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Thank you as well as to you, Brett. Well, I want to get into your career a little bit, but we really want to talk about Opening Day 2003. If I'm not mistaken, Rodrigo, and I love the coffee mug for those of our uh, viewers who can actually see our podcast here. A nice Orioles <laughs> coffee mug. I believe you start three opening days for the Orioles. Three opening days, including the 2003 opening day, which I, a game I was at as a fan a peculiar one because there was a snow delay. The season starts in March. I believe it was the last day of March in 2003. And a former teammate of yours, Jay Gibbons, loses a fly ball in the snow. Not something you see or talk about every day in baseball, but what was your recollection of that opening day, Rodrigo? 
well, that was my, my first opening day. I was coming off of just a, a great uh, rookie year. And yeah, like, honestly, dealing with that kind of uh, weather situation, I never, I never had before. And I remember we just come from Fort Lauderdale. We had, well, actually, we make a stop, I believe, in, uh, in New York uh, to play the Mets. So we start to, uh, you know, to get used to the, the, the weather. So the, the night before, the day before, we got a, a, a workout in the Camden Yard. So it, it was uh, snowing a little bit. So I went out there to jog just to get the feeling of the weather. And I remember that, not, that day, actually, that was in a, it was a day game. It was beautiful at the beginning. The first two innings, we were beautiful. We, I didn't think it was going to snow. So uh, top of the third, I went and started to see the snowflakes to come down and everything. And got two men on, on base. And remember, uh, uh, facing Alex Burns, I'm not sure. I believe I have him in two strikes. Uh, so when I see the snowflakes coming down, I was like, all right, probably this is my chance to get him out. So it was, it was hard for me to see the signs from my catcher, from Jerome McGill. <laughs> so I was like, it would be even harder for him to see the ball. So I dropped in the slider. Uh, I've been seeing that video a bunch of times. Really bad slider, so he connected. And in my uh, until now, but the way I remember, that ball went out uh, by the right side, by the right line uh, uh, line, hit the stands, and come back into the uh, into the uh, right field. So I don't know if you see the video. Kind of Jake Evans go forward and then runs. And Diango turns the uh, scoreboard well to the uh, message center over there. I remember uh, well, the way I, I think it happened is like he took uh, the stance, the ball came back. The umpire didn't even see where the ball was when it was in the air. So the first, when the umpire realized where the ball was, of course, wasn't a fair ball. So he called fair ball. And that was a totally confusion. So I think uh, all the players, as well the, the the Orioles and the Indians player, don't know what uh, what was happening. So uh, I think Omar Vizquel scored, and you can see he's almost walking. Alex Burns, like he just barely make it to the first base because he don't know where the ball was, or probably he knew where the ball was. So, and the guy who was on deck, I don't know if you guys remember, you probably do, Karim Garcia, a former Oriole. And yeah. uh, a countryman of mine, he told me the ball was on the stands because he got a different angle. So after the game, we get together and everything is like, man, that ball hit hit the hit the stands and came back. It's like, well, that was not my day. So all these days, when when was that? Two thousand three. So seventeen years. Still, I think it was a foul ball. Yeah. So, but anyways. <laughs> How many times had you seen snow before? Because you're from Mexico, and before you joined the Orioles, you were with the Padres, and, and they play in warmer weather climates. What was it like when, when and snow started falling? Because I, I can't imagine that you probably had seen it too much. Yeah. Uh, I just remember when I was in single A back in 94, I was in Clinton, Iowa. So we never played with uh, – while it, while it was snowing, I just remember there were some games canceled because it's snowing. 
but honestly, like pitching in the snow, it never, it never happened to me. Uh, the year before, in 2002, I remember we went out to Boston and it was super cold, but uh, probably a little bit of rain, but never snow. And that was my, my first time. I was kind of excited, you know. I was kind of excited pitching in the snow, but uh, in the, I, I never pitched under that conditions. So uh, there was, you know, definitely something to remember. Like, it don't work on my favor, but still, you know, pictures and videos are there on the internet and, you know, something I can show my, my kids. And after that, we, I still come back to the map because after the Alex Burns hit that uh, double or, or, or base hit, uh, they stopped the game for like 15, 20 minutes, and I came back to pitch in order three innings. So we won that game, actually. I didn't win it. I, I didn't get the win, but the Orioles won the opening night, the opening day. Yeah, Gary Matthews, uh, the big uh, base hit in the 13th inning for the Orioles to win that opening day back in 2003. I think what I recall is just, and as someone who's seen a lot of snow, is just the size of the snowflakes. I mean, that's what was so shocking. They were baseball-sized snowflakes, and that classic picture of Gibbons looking up, not being able to discern a snowflake from a baseball. Yeah, no, and, and that was the reason I made the pitch, because I couldn't hold it, and probably the player would call, you know, we call the, the to spend the game or something. But I was like, probably this is my chance. So, uh, so I threw a breaking ball instead of fastball, and I think I gave him a chance to, to bring to make to make a contact. But yeah, and I was like, in, in probably in the time frame of two three minutes because again the the, uh, the day was beautiful it was sunny uh, you know was not too cold but uh, in, in good conditions to play baseball so but uh, but yeah one of those things happened and, and during the the beginning of the season what were some ways that you all were trying to stay warm when it was snowing and and because of the conditions it was also forty eight degrees at first pitch. I think once you get out there and start to to get loose, I guess the uh, adrenaline just take over and you don't feel much. Of course, I got uh, a long sleeve uh, undershirt. Once are a little bit thicker, they got more, uh, I guess, uh, cotton underneath. Uh, I rub some uh, lotion to keep me warm, and. And, but once you're out there, I, I don't think you're you much worry about uh, the, the temperature. Either is it hot or is it cold? I think you're you're competing, and the priority is to get the people get your job done. Rodrigo, I want to ask you about coming to Baltimore. If I recall correctly, in '02, you kind of surprisingly make the team. You become dominant out of the bullpen. Eventually, force the team to give you a rotation spot. You win 15 games. You come in second in Rookie of the Year. You go on to start three opening days for the Orioles. And if I recall the story correctly, some Orioles scout found you pitching in the Mexican League kind of coincidentally. And uh, you got I know you made your debut at the Padres a couple of years prior uh, with a cup of coffee, but uh, you, you really kind of got this, I don't know, a, a lucky break sort of chance to, give, uh, to get another crack at the big leagues with Baltimore. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Uh... After I make my debut with the Padres in 2000, uh, the things didn't go uh, my way. So I think it, it, it hits me a little bit mentally. I thought I was never going to come back to, to the big leagues. So the year, the year after, 2001, I got hurt during the spring training. And uh, 
I didn't enjoy the AAA team until middle of the season or probably a little bit more. So I went down to Mexico right after the, the AAA season in Portland uh, just to establish myself because at the time I was still, uh, you know, prospect or, or, or young guy in baseball, even in Mexico. So I went down to Mexico uh, to play winter ball with another mentality because all that time that I missed uh, being the DL, uh, that was my first time like spending too much time in PL. So I hate it. So I was like, I, I need to play ball. I need to change my mentality. So I went down to, to Mexico. Uh, I report the very first day just uh, or, or, or training. So in Mexico, like probably people think like, all right, everybody had to report the, the, the first day. In Mexico, no, on winter leagues, not. You report like mid, mid of the season or, or late on the, in camp, whatever. So I went to the very first day. And I, I had a, a great, great season with the Tomateros down in Mexico. So uh, having that chance to uh, sign with the Orioles, I was pretty surprised because I was like totally opposite where I was used to. I was with the Padres, National League, you know, uh, West Division, uh, totally different. Uh, being Arizona, uh, being South, whatever. So I was surprised that the Orioles signed me because there was a East, I was another division, I was another league. And at the same time, I was like, well, this is my shot. So I got to make a good impression through the sprint training and, and try to make my way back to, uh, to the big leagues. And one, uh, uh, I think uh, my last game was spring training. We were playing in, uh, I think the national, not, not the nationals, the Xbox back then or, or the Marlins. I was pitching pretty good. All my arms were good. And that one, uh, that was not good. I think I gave up like two or three runs. So I was like, yeah, like, oh, my God, this is my chance. I just blew it. So I was very nervous. We uh, fly to Atlanta. And I remember I was on the dugout. And somebody called me to the office. And, uh, yeah, when I, when I what, uh, walk into the My Heart Grow office, he was like, hey, no worries. This, this is like good news. And like, oh, my God. So I was like, I almost, I almost cried because I never thought I was going to get back to the big league. So, and from then on, I was just so pleased to be in the big leagues. And I just want to, uh, you know, did everything possible to help the team. Eventually, things turned my way and I become a starter. But, uh, but yeah, that was uh, – that was my story going to the Orioles and that made my career. I mean, once I joined the Orioles, everything changed in my life. So I never thought I was going to have that kind of career. I almost, I almost went down to Mexico the year before because I was so upset with the, with the Padres that uh, I don't think it treated me the, the way it, uh, I was supposed to be treated. But, you know, that was just all maturity on my part. So I always went down to Mexico. And I always ask myself, if I would go to Mexico, what would it happen? I probably never came back to the big leagues. But the Orioles give me the other chance. And most of the people remember me as an Oriole thanks to those good years that I had with, uh, with the team in Maryland. You had a lot of success in the Mexican League before the Orioles signed you. But still, you'd had some time in the big leagues like you talked about before you came to Baltimore. And you didn't put up the best numbers. In your second go-around in the big leagues, what changed that, that wasn't there for you when you were with San Diego? 
I think that was the mentality. Again, um, uh, ESPN, the magazine back then, remember that magazine that changed the sure. format? It was a yep. little bit. Uh, my, my mentality was just trying to, I guess, going there and wishing to win. So I started to get tired of that. Tired of probably pitch one game and two okay, two so-so. So what I uh, make that interview, I told them, the guy from the ESPN, the magazine, that you know, my mentality was like, take everything as a challenge. Uh, I'm pretty, you know, pretty competitive and I want to accomplish any challenge that that's in, you know, in my career. So that's the way I, I changed my approach, my mentality, like challenge to make a pitch, challenge to retire batter, challenge to get a win. So that's what uh, it changed in my, in, in my uh, mental game. And that year in winter ball, the, the winter before I enjoyed the Orioles, that was my best year uh, in that league. Ten wins, two losses. I won the all five games during a playoff. And I went to uh, the Korean World Series to win the championship game. And I realized how different it was of, you know, challenge myself in every opportunity uh, than the way I was thinking before. I guess when you are a young prospect or a young pitcher, it's hard to you to make a transition. Once you are a reality, then you're a prospect. Because when you're young and you got called up or you got promoted to the other level, if you don't do the, the you know, if, if you don't pitch well, you excuse yourself saying, oh, I'm young. And even the coaches also, you know, kind of spoil you and say, hey, no worries, this is an experience, you'll be all right, and stuff like that. And you start to, I guess, get used to that treatment. And when they need you, when you need to step up for yourself up in the big leagues, mentally you're not ready. So I think that year, 2001, when I was in the DL, is when all these things click into my head and, and change my mentality. Rodrigo, I think you really have to kind of appreciate your five years in Baltimore. You win 60 games in five seasons, pitching for, let's face it, some pretty uh, rough teams, some bad teams. And you did it in the toughest division where I'm going to guess you had to face the Yankees and Red Sox, you know, five times combined, at least every single season. And to win 60 games uh, and three seasons really stand out, but uh, is really a tribute to you and your success. In other words, if you were to you know, put Rodrigo Lopez on a 500 club, who knows what those seasons look like. You're probably pitching all-star games. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would call them a good, uh, a good teams. You know, uh, I'm, I feel pretty blessed to have a chance to, to pitch against those kind of lineup. Ireland in 2000, the Yankees and the Red Sox, they were full loaded. You see those names, most of those guys going to make it to the Hall of Fame or already or already in the Hall of Fame. So I, I just feel lucky to have a chance to pitch at Yankee Stadium, to pitch at uh, 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 Fenway Park when, you know, when Jason Beretag, with Manny Ramirez, even before David Ortiz joined the, the Red Sox. So there was, for me, uh, uh, a great experience and a great motivation I remember when I was uh, young, when I was in the minor leagues, watching the Yankees, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to pitch in the lineup. Those are full loaded. So their guys are legends, uh, are pitching. So uh, 
when I faced uh, the Yankees in the opening day my, in 2002, just uh, coming at the bullpen, take the ball over uh, Scott Erickson, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I didn't, I didn't even know how to get the first guy out. And then uh, I get that get uh, out of that inning, and then I fixed Eddie Jeter. Man, that was my, you know, one of the guys I, I admire. So he hit a home run and, and, you know, just part of the game. But uh, I guess within the time you get used to it, you go out there and compete. But now that I see the numbers, I like, you know, I didn't think you realized your 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 performance uh, while you're playing. You just want to do better uh, game after game. But now that I'm on the other side, now I'm doing the analysis on, on baseball. Once in a while, I look at my numbers and I was like, oh my god, I, I got really bad games, but also I got really good games against those, those teams and then against those uh, lineups. So, uh, you know, uh, I, that gave me something to tell my kids and my grandkids what it was all about. And, you know, I just feel very fortunate to be part of the Orioles back then. Among the Yankees and the Red Sox, who was the toughest hitter that you had to face? Well, all the, all the, all, all the batters were pretty, pretty tough. Well, uh, not all of them, you know, I got to be honest. But uh, as far as numbers, Derek Jerry got my numbers. He's hit like 429 career average. I remember like one time I was like, you know, I'm not even worried about getting him out. I just put the ball in the middle. He's going to get a hit anyways. So then uh, I, he got a blooper. He got a hit opposite field. And the guy that was like really uh, concerned when he stepped into the battle blocks, that was Manny Ramirez. And somehow I got good numbers against him or, you know, a pitch well and a key situation. So I remember throwing everything away, just trying to set him up to finish him inside, throwing breaking balls like uh, uh, front door sliders or cutters that gave me a lot to, to, to get him out. But, you know, Manny Ramirez was one of the best uh, batters that exists. So uh, those guys were pretty good. But as far as numbers, they did get their high my numbers. Rodrigo, uh, you played for three different managers in five years. So it kind of tells a story about where the Orioles were uh, at that point in franchise history. But tell me about Mike Hargrove, uh, the guy who, who gave you your first break with the ball club in 02, uh, gave you the ball on opening day in 03. Tell me about Grover, who obviously uh, pedigree goes as a player and as a manager before Baltimore, had a lot of success. Yeah, though that was uh, I had different idea when I joined the Orioles about my hero. I saw with the Indians, uh, and I thought he was one of those guys that are you know, uh, they were pretty uh, pretty intense. Uh, he was pretty intense, definitely, but he know how to treat his players. He always gave me confidence. He always talked to me in the in the right way. He made me feel you know, uh, comfortable in the big leagues and, uh, and, and give me the chance to, uh, to get back to the big leagues. On my second year, when I had my first kid, uh, Rodrigo, remember he was, uh, I was talking to him about him. He was like, are you going to call him Miguel? And I was like, why Miguel? Like, because I'm Mike. So those kind of things, like, I didn't expect with, with my hard role. He was intent when he had to. But uh, I can't understand his, his, his success in the big leagues because he knows how to treat players. 
different different than the new generation of manager, managers now that all you know all, all very nice or now it's about communication and about to be a, a nice guy so not not that kind of manager but somehow you feel his presence kills his leadership but at the same time you got the confidence to go out there and talk to him who was a pitcher on one of those Orioles teams that helped you get better acclimated to the big leagues and maybe assisted with the success that you had in that, that first, uh, you know, full season with the Orioles and then beyond? Uh, as far as pitcher, uh, Scott Erickson. I mean, that guy was great teammate. Even that uh, year after, I think, 2003, he doesn't have a good season, but he – get me under his wing. I remember getting to the bus, getting to the airplane. It was just uh, always trying to uh, bring me to his party. Seeing the Ponson, but he was not a veteran at the time. He was still, you know, making his way to uh, to establish. But seeing it also, he was a, a, a great friend of mine. But the veterans, Scott Erickson, man, he, he, there's a guy that, you know, I, uh, I thanks for make me feel really comfortable up in the big leagues. So uh, good relationship that I have with him. I learned a lot from him, different style of pitcher that I have. Uh, stuff with my stuff, but always, uh, always make me feel good being around him. And I remember pitch one time against him when he was with Texas. So for me, it was a great game just to face one of those guys to help you out on your way up. Erickson and Ponson, those are two pretty wild guys uh, to look up to. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, this is somewhat random, but, you know, I remember it so well. 05, you know, the club before goes out and gets no 04. Javi Lopez and Miguel Tejada, obviously at that point, the fans are kind of buzzing and, and desperate uh, for a turn. And, and you can see there's some, there's some young talent, a lot of first-round picks were on the team, guys like Roberts and Larry Bigby and people like that. Uh, you know, you saw some potential with Bedard and Daniel Cabrera. Uh, but that team, that 05 team, uh, also B.J. Ryan is an all-star that year. Uh, that 05 team goes into the all-star break like a game out of first place against Boston. I think the Orioles took three out of four heading in to, um, to the all-star break. And for like a moment, it, it was like this is going to happen. And then it kind of fell apart after the all-star break. But it was a really fun team to watch. Sammy Sosa obviously uh, got to that team and created some buzz just by being there. Not the same player uh, from Chicago. But uh, your, your thoughts on, on – that almost kind of 05 team that for half a season was neck and neck with the Red Sox. Yeah, well, when they signed Sammy uh, Sosa, I think, you know, we were uh, – we, we, we improved. Definitely the, the, the Orioles were in a top division. And I remember at the end of the year, my first year from 2002 to 2004, it was like a tendency for the Orioles, like, at the end of the uh, uh, of the season, the last month, we always, you know, head south. And that year, the way we started was like, man, this is this is the team. This uh, we're gonna make it to the playoff. So, uh, and things like happened again in 2005. Uh, I remember in the spring training, also Rafael Palmeiro was there. Uh, it, we got uh, a, a team. In uh, offensively, with uh, a lot of uh, good players, all-star, former all-star, former MVP. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, some, some of the guys got hurt. 
I think uh, Javi Lopez start to, uh, you know, when was not <clears throat> as good as he was with uh, with the Braves, and started falling apart. I guess in part as well because the young pitcher that we have in staff, and I think for the last you know months of the season is when you need to step up, show you maturely, show your experience in the big leagues, and as with that's what we keep the the good teams, you know, and and, and the top of the uh, the division. So I think that's that's what it happens, and we never we we couldn't recover to make it to the playoff. But yeah, that was a a season that we got high expectations, but at the end we couldn't we couldn't done it the 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 year round. Two thousand four wasn't quite the same as two thousand and five, but. Miguel Tejada, watching what he did in that 04 season where he racked up 34 homers, 150 RBIs. What was it like seeing him in the lineup every day? It was fun because uh, Miggy was one of those leaders that have, you know, bring the, the, the good energy into the clubhouse. I always have, every time just walking to the clubhouse, being happy, turn on the music and seeing him not to take any day off it was like you know this is our leader so we had to go out there and try to do our best i mean being a pitcher you cannot be there every day but he lived with that example that uh he was there for the team he wanted to win i remember uh one time we were probably by six weeks off uh the season end he brought the team together bring his ring uh, the, the the one ring that he got with the with the Oakland A's, and he brings the the season. The I think that was the 2002 season when he was with Oakland, and they won like 21 games, something like that. Uh, he told that story about how they were like so far behind to make the to be in the race for the playoff, but you know, just to play as a team, to play with energy, with good attitude. Uh, he shows his ring and say, this is what the game about, getting this ring. So don't give up. We still got some weeks to go. And if we play as a team and we bring the good energy, we can do it. So it was a good uh, memory that I have with, uh, with the Hallowell. He was with the Orioles. He cares about, uh, about his team. He cares about winning. And I think that's what he's making a good leadership. And you see him there uh, playing every day and the way he plays, you know that was that's something it was something else one time somebody somebody asked him hey me why you don't take a day off They're like why would i take a day off that day probably there's four ibs for me why will i let him go I'm like well you're ready so you know that those, those kind of answers he always have like he always with the bring energy that energy that contagious everybody else Rodrigo, tell us about what you're doing right now in uh, in your life and professionally. Uh, professionally, uh, this is my it was going to be or is my seventh season with the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks as a color analysis in Spanish. So uh, I retire back in 2013. Uh, 2013, my last uh, year on um, being an active player, I play in Mexico. So my last year in the big leagues back was a. Uh, 2012 with the Chicago Cubs and uh, right after that I was uh, playing golf with one uh, guy that worked for the Diamondbacks and he asked me if I was interested to join 
the radio. And I was like, right on. So I was like, it's a good uh, excuse to, to retire. And um, ever since, since 2014, I've been uh, in the booth with my partner. And uh, on my regular basis, well, I don't do much but playing golf. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. So knowing a lot of people and uh, it, it's just fun, you know. Uh, Phoenix is my, my hometown. As you know, there's uh, a lot of golf courses in here and knowing people from all over the world. And, you know, it, it, it just, it's just fun to, to go out there and, and have good days. And in the afternoon, then I can go to the Chase Field to watch a big league game and get paid for it. <laughs> Love that. Did, um, what, what are your recollections from the, uh, the first big league game that you broadcast? Uh, what was that uh, experience like? Uh, when you're down on the field and the game is moving really quickly to going up in the, in the booth and suddenly uh, you're seeing things from a lot farther away. I don't know. I was very nervous. I don't know what to do. I asked my, my partner, Hey, please give me some advice. Let me know what the, what am I doing? So my first game uh, behind the microphone, it was in Australia because the Diamondbacks played the Dodgers in, uh, in Sydney, Australia. So I flew with the team. Well, the the whole, all the employees, I guess, they were in that in that airplane to Sydney, Australia. So I remember we fly about uh, a week before the opening day. So I was in Australia uh, a week prior the first game. So I asked uh, my boss, I guess, uh, the the guy in charge with the broadcast point. I like. Hey, you want me to do something? You want me to go to the ballpark? You want me to interview? Like, no, 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 no. You just enjoy it. Enjoy it. You don't have to. So I was like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, should I go to practice or, or not? Like, I don't want to get in the player's way. So I was uh, one week of vacation in Australia. Don't know what to do. Get into the ballpark. And I was like, all right. So now what? Now what? So then the game started, and I was very nervous to start to, you know, uh, make my comments. I didn't know, I didn't know when, you know, I, I didn't have that timing back then. I took a time for make my comments. So uh, it took me like two or three pitches to make my comments, but nobody says anything. So I was like, I don't know if I'm doing right or not, but I'm enjoying it. So it took me, it took me, you know, a few innings to get comfortable, but I was very nervous. And there were times like, you know, I got things in my head, but I was like, I don't know if I want to say this or not. So uh, that was my, my first game in Australia. And, you know, definitely good memories, but I was, I was very nervous. Yeah, it's an uh, uh, interesting transition. But you're, I can tell you're a talker. Uh, and, and your experience in doing these Diamondbacks games uh, and the teams you've had a chance to see these last few years, tell us about that. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, I've been learning a lot, and it, it, it's funny. Like, you think when you're playing, you, you know a lot, but uh, the reality is different. When you're behind, uh, behind the scenes, as probably you know, guys, there's a lot of things that, uh, that you can uh, learn from the game. I mean, as a pitcher, when I was a pitcher, I guess I just worry about the batters from the other team. And now I have to, you know, uh, analyze the whole thing 
the manager's perspective, the batter's perspective, defense, offense, and now with the cybermetrics things, all the numbers, had to read the numbers. So it make it pretty, pretty interesting. And at the same time, you had to learn how to, you know, uh, had to present all your information or your comments to the audience in a small time. So all those things that, you know, uh, kill me a lot to see the game on different way. And I give a lot of respect now to the players, but also to those guys who does radio for, you know, all his, all his life, like Vince Collin, uh, Jim Palmer, uh, well, uh, Jim Hunter, Jim Palmer, all those guys, because honestly, when you're playing and you see, you hear those guys on radio, sometimes it's easy for you as a player to say, hey, how come this guy said this? He don't know what to do. He never played. Man, those guys are pretty professionals, and it's hard for any broadcaster broadcast 162 games and don't make a mistake, you know? So I, I got more uh, – uh, I, I admire more those guys that have been doing the radio for, for a long time because it's not easy. It's not easy. Do any pitchers ever come up and ask you for advice? Because you have a lot of knowledge to pass along as somebody who pitched for more than a decade in the big leagues. Uh, well, uh, yeah, well, when, while I'm doing the analysis, yes, there's some guys, especially on the Latin players that uh, come to me and ask me for more, for advice. Uh, Randa Delgado was a Panamanian pitcher that was with the Orioles. Uh, I have, you know, talked to him for two or three times. And uh, Jorge De La Rosa, uh, Ruby De La Rosa, most of the Latin players uh, came out and talked to me. And uh, I'm just trying to give them my, my uh, perspective from up here. Sometimes I, I, I think when you are on the mound, you don't realize your tendencies or you don't realize how important it is to pitch inside or just to make a pitch. And also I tell them about their body language. I tell them like Randall Delgado, Man, you look, you got great stuff, but it seems like your body language uh, is uh, it's unsecure. So everybody in the stadium realizes that, especially the other the other pitchers. So you have to come up with a different attitude and show like even when you don't have your best stuff, you know, act like you have your best stuff. So and things like that. Uh, then I'm trying to help. Like I remember Jim Palmer went down to the dugout and also always gave us his uh, his advice, but. No, well, he was a Hall of Famer, but somehow we picked some of his uh, his his thoughts and tried to, you know, improve into the game. Rodrigo Lopez, that was a lot of fun catching up. Thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. Brett, thank you very much. It was fun, and you know, thanks to all the guys, all the fans in Baltimore. Yeah, I missed them. Rodrigo Lopez, who pitched. In five seasons for Baltimore, three opening day starts. A great catching up with Rodrigo Lopez. And Jeff, I love the Rodrigo story. Yeah, opening day with the snow is fun, but he was pitching for, and he talked about it in the Mexican League, uh, the translation is the tomato growers. He went from the tomato growers to opening day in Baltimore in the span of about a year plus, and, and opening day to an Orioles rotation, or I should say from the tomato growers to a big league rotation in just a few months. I love those stories. They're great stories, and I think that 
season in the, the Mexican league was kind of a time for him to realize that he still had it because when he was pitching in the, the big leagues with the Padres, he didn't really pitch very well. And then he got injured in 2001. He had that shoulder injury. So he had something to prove to himself as well as maybe any scouts that were going to be at those games. And then he was able to keep up that form when he arrived to the Orioles was, was kind of the John means of that, that team where he started out in the bullpen was just hopeful to make the team kind of like John means was last year and then works his way into the starting rotation, never left finishing second in rookie of the year voting. And Jeff, obviously uh, moving on from, Rodrigo Lopez, every Orioles fan uh, today is reacting to the Players' Tribune piece uh, written beautifully by Trey Mancini, who's obviously been recovering from uh, colon cancer and going through chemo treatments. And what jumped out to you in what Mancini uh, published really this morning? I'd say the honesty that he had. I'd say the way that he talked about what the Orioles have done for him over the course of this process, made him feel like family, Brooks Robinson getting in touch with him, Mo getting in touch with him. I know that was been uplifting. But I think throughout this entire process, and Brandon Hyde talked about this in one of the conference calls that we had with him, is that not only does Trey, um, can he talk to Trey and, and, you know, Trey inspires him. And he inspires everybody around him. And that's why he's, he's such a special player and a big part of the Orioles family is that everybody rallies around him. He's an incredibly likable guy. He's one of the most likable people I've ever met in the game. And he's as good of a guy as you're going to meet. So everybody's behind him during this time. And I think they're even more so after he, like you said, penned that beautiful piece where he talked about every step of the process and how the Orioles have been right there with him. Yeah, I want to read one paragraph that uh, jumped out uh, to me this morning when I read this, and I'm going to quote here. Honestly, I love the Orioles. Our team trainers have been so on top of everything. I'm so appreciative for them and also the Orioles front office and ownership. They have treated me like family. Brooks Robinson called me when I was in the hospital to let me know he was thinking of me and to ask if I needed anything. That was incredible. And that's uh, something that jumped out to me today. And the piece written by Mancini. And we're all hopeful he's going to make a recovery uh, as, as soon as he possibly can. But for right now, all we can do is just show him as much support as, as possible. And he's a person, like I said, everyone roots for him. And when you, you meet him in person and you spend any significant time around him, it, it's even more so because he's, he's not only just a really special baseball player, but he's a really special guy. He really is. And has those qualities and a leader that organizations look for, uh, someone who earned his way to the big leagues, uh, someone – and he got into all this stuff today. I think, I think what also I love about it, it was kind of a, a love letter to baseball as well. You know, going talking about little league experiences, the minor leagues, struggling in the big leagues, uh, facing adversity in the big leagues. And there are all these building blocks there for life, to be honest with you. And, uh, and there was something about that and – saying that when the time comes, uh, whether it's this year or next, when he's uh, up to it physically and can do it physically, he is going to be ready for baseball. And that's kind of the message it was. But taking us through also his life and career, and he's just someone that you always root for because he was never a top 100 prospect. Uh, for whatever reason, those who make those kinds of lists just never, despite 
and Jeff, you know this as well as anyone, I mean, gaudy minor league numbers. I mean, years in what? In the Eastern League, getting 350? Am I around, right around that number? Yeah, uh, you won an Eastern League batting title. Eastern League batting title uh, at, you know, 22, 23, whatever it was. You don't win those by accident. But for whatever reason, uh, the Baseball America types never saw that. But uh, he's clearly uh, become a, a frontline major league everyday player and just someone that people really like genuinely and fans like and appreciate he has roots in maryland his family's roots in Bowie, and all of that so uh it's someone you're just you you pull for anyone but people are really pulling for trey mancini i thought it was funny how he talked about when he was playing summer collegiate ball after his first year at notre dame which he talked about was really the only place that recruited him and he was really thankful for the opportunity and notre dame has a fantastic tradition in in many ways but how he would go out there. He played for a guy named Kirk Fredrickson, who a year after he was the, the general manager of the, the team that Trey played for in the NECBL, went on to become an Orioles scout. And Fredrickson's territory wasn't even the area where Mancini was playing, but he just had a hunch about somebody that is, is Trey talked about. Uh, I wasn't the smoothest out there. And I remember in some of the interviews that we did when he was in Frederick, he's like, you know, sometimes when I play first base, I'm a little bit of a bull at a china shop. And that's just – just how it is. But there is something special about him. And I sort of figure when I watch him for the first time, this is a guy that's going to find a way to put it all together. It isn't always smooth. It's not always pretty, but he gets the job done. And whenever someone would come up and ask me about Mancini or, or how he played or his defense, I was like, he gets it done. He can hit. He and, can hit. And, and defensively, he's better than people think he is. It, it, it back then that is what I'm talking about. It didn't, it wasn't always pretty. And, and sometimes some of the, you know, things that he would do weren't, weren't the smoothest, but he would get the job done. And sure enough, since he's gotten up to the Orioles and after he took the step from Frederick to Bowie and had that incredible season with them where the, the Bay Sox won an Eastern league title. And then he eventually gets up to the Orioles and now he's, he's starting to break out. I'm sure he'll be able to, to get back to that form. And, and he'll certainly, I think, as well, um, appreciate the game to a whole other level uh, when he does get back and is playing again. Jeff Arnold, always a pleasure. And we want to thank Rodrigo Lopez for also joining us today. Uh, until next time, this has been another edition of Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Life.